Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, I'm Dr. Narjas Duma, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. We are your hosts for this special episode of Lung Cancer Considered, bringing you highlights from the 2021 IASLC World Conference on Lung Cancer. So it is here, the World Conference on Lung Cancer 2021. This is the second ISLC World Conference that is held virtually. And due to the pandemic and also the postponement of Singapore, we are lucky to have two World Conference on Lung Cancer in 2021. So this taping, registration top over 6,000 registrants from 105 different countries. The virtual platform this year has been updated thanks to the feedback provided for attendees earlier this year. It offers a wider and more inclusive reach than any other meetings in the past. It's exciting, innovative research is being presented. You also have the opportunity to share views across the globe. We have live interactive Q&A sessions and more interactive features. In addition, the presentations are recorded and you can watch them later at the meeting platform. And you can also download the presentations for future reference and to send those presentations to your fellows and residents when necessary. So we have as our very special guests today, the three conference co-chairs for WCLC 21. Joining us are the conference president, Dr. David Harpel, a thoracic surgeon, professor of surgery and pathology at Duke University School of Medicine. Hello. We also have Dr. Kristen Higgins, a radiation oncologist, associate professor of radiation oncology at Emory University School of Medicine. Hello, it's great to be here with everyone. And the third co-chair is medical oncologist, Dr. Tom Stinchcomb, professor of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine. So first, let us congratulate you for a wonderful work conference on lung cancer. This meeting rotates every year, and this year is North American location was Denver. And that's the three, the three shares of these meetings here are with us. I'm going to repeat that. Is that okay? I'm going to start again. All right. First, congratulations on a wonderful World Conference on Lung Cancer. This meeting rotates regionally, and this year, the North American location was to be Denver, with the three OU as chairs. Due to the ongoing pandemic, the meeting changed to virtual. David, when did you realize the meeting was going to be virtual and no in person? And initially, did you plan for both possibilities? Well, For all of us, the World Conference on Lung Cancer is the highlight of the experience for those of us who take care of patients with thoracic malignancies. We're able to share with each other uh, and develop longstanding friendships. And so we've all been very disappointed that both the Singapore meeting and this one ended up virtual. We were hopeful that during the first part of this year that we might be alive, live or hybrid, but as the pandemic continued, we realized that going to the virtual platform was probably the safest route. The good news is is that although the Singapore meeting went well, there were many refinements to the platform, which has allowed more interaction and I think more participation to give it a feel of a person-to-person meeting 
And we've been very happy so far with the participation and the results. Tom, everything has gone really well, but you must have been at least a little disappointed the meeting wouldn't be in person. Are there any advantages, though, to this virtual format? Well, Stephen, yes, I was disappointed. I think many of us thought that the pandemic was waning, but we weren't anticipating the Delta variant, and then we had to make the adjustment. I think virtual meetings do have some advantages that we hope to use in this meeting as well as future meetings. I think, one, they can be a little bit less disruptive in terms of there's less travel, and then many times you can review the videos on your own time pace or multiple times. I think the ability to download PDFs of the presentations and look at them several times is an advantage because sometimes you miss something when you just see it once in the oral presentation. And I think if we think about climate change, there's less of a carbon footprint with less travel. And as we think about safety for us, as well as for the patients and care teams, obviously less exposure to the COVID, it means less risk for the patients that we treat and less chance that it will accidentally transmit it to them. So as, as I continue to attend more and more conference during my career, I imagine this conference to be like a very large wedding, like a very large wedding that requires a lot of planning. So, but like in any large wedding, there may be surprises or unique challenges. So Kristen, with the planning of this global meeting virtually, there were any surprises of somebody lose a shoe, like it may happen in a wedding? (laughs) Well, nobody has lost a shoe yet, to my knowledge. But I would say one of the main challenges with planning a virtual conference is that it just takes more time to get all of the presentations recorded and organized ahead of time. And that really to a large extent, fell on the ISLC staff. But we're very lucky that the ISLC staff is is so professional and so good at their jobs that they really organized this meeting with us extremely well. So everything was done well ahead of time. And, you know, I think it's all gone, gone very well thus far. You know, the main things you worry about are, you know, difficulties with the platform, IT problems, things of nature, and really everything's gone very smoothly. Other challenges are coordination with time zones and things of that nature, but overall, our faculty have been very flexible and and willing to work within the different time constraints to get presentations recorded and to be available for the Q&A. And I think the live Q&A is really important, and that's been invaluable to have as much discussion in person and live as possible, and that's been a great part of this conference for us. I really think you're downplaying how difficult that job is for all three of you. And, you know, knowing our colleagues and getting them all to submit their talks on time, I really think it's like herding cats, but it's gone, it's gone so smoothly. It's been very impressive. You know, one thing that doesn't really translate is that the social aspect, you know, catching up with friends, making new connections, the networking, and really just seems to be hard to replicate that virtually. Fortunately for us and the main mission here is that the science component translates quite well. So maybe we can talk about some of the big stories coming out of WCLC. One that I'd like to start with was from our colleague at Sarah Cannon, Dr. Melissa Johnson. She presented data from the phase three Poseidon trial. As a recap, this study randomized over a thousand patients with treatment-naive EGFR-ALK wild-type non-small cell lung cancer to one of three arms, PD-L1 inhibitor Dervalimab plus chemo with Derva maintenance, Dervalimab plus the CTLA-4 inhibitor tremolimumab plus chemotherapy with Derva maintenance and one dose of tremie maintenance or standard chemotherapy. Co-primary endpoints of this study were PFS and OS in the Derva chemo arm versus chemo alone. And as we saw at WCLC, the Derva chemo had a better PFS than chemo alone with a trend to better OS 
but the Derva Tremi chemo arm did meet both of its endpoints, improving PFS with a hazard ratio of 0.72 and improving OS with a hazard ratio of 0.77. That OS benefit was greater in that PDL1 high subgroup with Derva at 0.63 and Derva Tremi at 0.65. And, you know, a bit unlike some of the other Tremi studies we've seen over the years, the safety profile pretty similar between Derva and Derva Tremi, only about 15% of people stopping therapy due to tremulated adverse events. So we have, at the end of this, another option, another positive trial, another combination of immunotherapy and chemotherapy that has improved survival over chemo alone. Tom, let me throw this to you as a thoracic medical oncologist, as one with expertise in immunotherapy. Can you put this study in perspective? And you know, maybe I'll just sort of put it bluntly. If this regimen's approved tomorrow, how do you use it? Thank you for the question, Stephen. I think that's, I think it's a complicated question, but I'll sort of try and break it down. I think the trial is positive. The Druvotremi did beat chemotherapy. I think most of us recognize that chemotherapy was an appropriate control arm when this trial was designed, but it doesn't really reflect clinical practice. And I think what's happened is that there are now a number of different combinations out there and that this will be compared to those combinations, most likely carboplatin, pembrolizumab, pembrolizumab, or the carbotaxane pembrolizumab. And then it's also going to be compared to the Checkmate 9LA and the Checkmate 227, which also investigated PD-1 and CTLA combinations. Personally, I thought this trial was a positive. It will be available. I'm not really certain it has many advantages over the currently available therapies when I kind of look at the hazard ratios and the Kaplan-Meier curves. I know we always focus on the tail of the curve, um, but in the follow-ups, less than the other trials. But I think that this will be available. I personally don't see myself using this frequently at this point, especially with another chemo IO, excuse me, chemo PD-1 CTLA combination available. I think Jeremy 9A LA has some advantages that it only had two cycles of the chemotherapy. And I also think interesting, like on the Checkmate 9 LA, they continued the ipilimumab. Well, this trial, they only got five doses of the CTLA. I'm not sure if that contributed to the, the outcomes of each of the trials, but it's is sort of a question that if you think immunotherapy is working, most of the time we continue the immunotherapy until disease progression, unacceptable toxicities, rather than giving a, a short course like was used in this trial. I think we're continuing to learn, you know, the role of CTL4. We know small cell lung cancer. I think we're getting more and more data. I think there is a place for it. And I agree with you, Tom. It's kind of hard to find spaces, particularly when you're more used to certain regimens than others. And another important trial that was updated was Power 010 from Dr. Nasser Al-Turki. Dr. Heather Weekly, our newly appointed ISLC president, had presented the initial report at ASCO 2021. Here we had an important update. Let's just remember that this is a randomized phase three trial for patients with completely resected stage 1b to 3a no small cell lung cancer. Patients completed one, but no more than four cycles of adjuvant chemotherapy, and they were randomized one-to-one to receive the pd one atisoluzumab for one year of best supportive care. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival in pd one positive patients at stage two to 3A. We did see a significant benefit with disease-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.66. Following the hierarchical design, we then look at disease-free survival in all stage 2 and 3A. And we did see also benefit. We had disease-free survival hazard ratio of 0.79. And this clinical trial, which included a stage 1B, 
the disease preservable benefit was not yet a statistical significant. So we have to wait for that data to mature. We saw in the primary pd one positive stage two to three subgroup, the greatest benefit was seen in patients that got a lobectomy and it was less impressive in patients that require a pneumonectomy. We has a ratio of 0.63 versus 0.83. We also saw some differences that I was surprised about the chemotherapy administer. And we can see this in international trials in which certain regimens are more commonly used here versus other areas. So the patient had better outcomes in cisplatin mineralbin and worse outcomes in cisplatin gensadivine. David, you're a surgeon. So what is your reaction to this data? Is adjuvant atisolizumab ready for prime time? Well, there were several things entered the study. The first thing I would note is that the cycles given and the completeness of therapy was much better in this trial than in the historical three randomized adjuvant chemotherapy trials. So I think we're probably better at maintaining patients during chemotherapy. So that's one point. Secondly, the benefit of the checkpoint inhibitor was on the same range as the benefit that we saw with adjuvant chemotherapy, a hazard ratio between 0.75 and 0.8. But I want to note that that's in addition to the chemotherapy. So it was an additional benefit. So I do think this would, these are important findings. Now, I believe we need to, for the intention to treat, we need to see the overall survival data. And yes, that for patients with large central tumors that require pneumonectomy, it's often that we see worse outcomes just because, frankly, more than the disease burden and the likelihood of downstaging with therapy is less in those patients. And the cis and gem picture is probably associated with squamous histology, which is more commonly seen in Europe than in North America, and that may explain those differences. But overall, you know, I think these are promising results, and we just need to stay tuned. So, Tom, your thoughts. Is adjuvant desolizumab appropriate to use today, or do we still need to wait for overall survival data? Uh, I think this is one of the great philosophical debates in thoracic oncology. And personally, I prefer the overall survival endpoint for our adjuvant trials. I think in the reality, this drug is going to become available in the next couple of months. And when I kind of look at this data, I kind of look at the PDL1 status, you know, and I thought there was a robust and clinically meaningful benefit in the PDL1 greater than 50%, a little bit less convincing in PDL1, great 1% or greater, and then without any PDL1 selection. And I think what we're going to have to do is sort of adapt to the new circumstances, really have conversations with patients and saying that. The degree of benefit may vary, and we know that this uh, causes a disease-free survival benefit, but the data is immature for overall survival benefit at this uh, time. And I think that's increasingly we're getting familiar with these type of conversations in the adjuvant setting with approval of osimertinib. I agree with both of you. It said, David, I was blown away by the the chemotherapy delivery. I mean, you know, 95% got four cycles of cystostaxel. That really was much higher than I would have thought. I was expecting a lot of people just getting the one cycle and and maybe the average around two to three, but to see just such high delivery, I thought was impressive. And I think the numbers we look at with those delivery of adjuvant chemotherapy are from trials that are decades old. And I think we've just gotten much better at giving adjuvant chemotherapy. Granted, this is a select population, but that was impressive. My hope though, is that when you look at the the adjuvant TKI studies that you'd mentioned, Tom, and, and the adjuvant immunotherapy studies, my hope is that the legacy from these trials will really be the detection of MRD, the correlative studies that have yet to be released, really detecting who needs more therapy and who is is already cured after meeting Tom, Kristen. So I think that my hope is that 
years later, a couple of WCLCs from now, that's that's what we'll read out. But for now, I do think these are exciting options. Another session in the plenary that I thought was was really important was a presentation on global lung cancer deaths attributable to air pollution. This was an effort led by Dr. Christine Berg and Dr. Joan Schiller. Some really striking numbers. You know, 14% of lung cancer deaths worldwide were attributed to air pollution. And we're talking about sources like fossil fuel plants, transit, indoor cooking modules. Air pollution you know, ultimately is an important cause of lung cancer that really needs to be eliminated. And this is something that we can't really ignore anymore. Kristen, what was your reaction to this presentation to this topic? So I think this is a very important and understudied topic in lung cancer. So I commend Dr. Berg and Dr. Shiloh for putting this together. I thought it was very interesting to see the global disparities in deaths from lung cancer across the world. If you look at globally 14%, but in the United States, it was closer to 5%. And then in terms of other countries, we really saw the highest rates in Eastern European countries and also in China. So again, that thread of of disparities across the spectrum in lung cancer is there. And then I thought it was really great to see the authors put forth a call to action to really demand more studies on clean air, more initiatives to support clean air across the globe. And I think that'll be really great for organizations like the ISLC to support those initiatives. So I thought overall, this was a really important topic and it was great to see this in the presidential symposium. So as a comment to this, I think, you know, the comment about indoor cooking modules is very related, of course, to some of the research I do, but this is a work exposure for a majority female population that often is, you know, unspoken about as a risk for lung cancer. And the case of air pollution, you know, is a health issue that affects all of us, not only. So I think it's, it's very, very important to mention that there are other things besides cigarettes and that we have to pay attention to all of them as they can contribute to the development of lung cancer in all patients. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And as you said, we're seeing more and more lung cancers and non-smokers, and we really need to understand how the environment contributes to those lung cancers. I think, you know, seeing the problem for all angles is necessary. And Kristen, we also saw a presentation for Dr. Matt Meltzer on an ISOST study of COVID-19 and its impact on lung cancer clinical trials. You know, now it looks like 10 years ago, but 2020 was only last year. And the number of COVID-19 cases were continued to increase during the year. All sites in the U.S., outside of the U.S., were involved. Clinical trial enrollment was lower in 2020 compared to 2019 for every month. There, there was overall significant reduction in clinical trials enrollment. There was the barriers that were listed including fewer eligible patients, protocol compliance, closures, and staff availability. Patient concerns were also included in the study, which included the fear of infection, travel restrictions, and transportation that sometimes is required for clinical trials. Some plans to modify this and increase the recruitment, including monitoring requirements, changes in protocol, and telehealth visits. With these efforts, accrual began to improve. So Kristen, since COVID-19 has started, how has Emory worked to improve or generate similar plans to work in clinical trial enrollment? So, uh, you know, at my institution, clinical trial enrollment is very high priority. So we We were able to continue enrollment throughout the pandemic, you know, even though staffing challenges and and so forth. But I would say that these challenges persist. 
in the United States right now, the labor force is getting smaller and smaller. So it's really hard to fill positions for our research coordinators and so forth. And that's one of the biggest challenges that we're dealing with right now, especially with the Delta variant. That's really a problem in the Southeast part of the United States. But I think that overall, the results of this abstract really speak to the resiliency of the lung cancer community and the fact that we realize how important these clinical trials are. And for many patients, the best treatment is on a clinical trial and we were able to adapt quickly. So I think that's, that's really important. You know, I, I'm just, I'm worried about how long the pandemic will persist in the United States, especially with our low vaccination rates and so forth. So I think we're going to have ongoing challenges and understanding how to continue to fight those ongoing challenges will be important. And, you know, I think also it's important that when we're designing our trials, that we look at having more, more flexible schedules and making these trials, I don't want to say pandemic proof, but, you know, easier to adapt and more, you know, less, less strict and less rigid. And I think that's something that we can work on as a community with our industry partners in the future as we continue to deal with the ongoing pandemic. And I think that's very important, Kristen. I think a lot of things that were considered to be a no-no prior to the pandemic, we learned that it is a yes, yes. Like some requirements that the protocol of patients getting the lab work outside of the main institution or patients doing telehealth visits, we have to, we adapted to that. And I hope we don't lose that because, uh, you know, after a patient is able to do telehealth follow-ups, it's very hard to say, oh, no, the protocol was modified again to what it used to be. And I hope all the lessons that we learn about adapting clinical trials, we continue because we continue to do poor enrollment in clinical trials prior to COVID-19 and with only three to 5% of patients that go on trials. And now with the pandemic largely affecting minority populations, my one of my fears is that we were doing very poorly enrolling patients of minority groups, and now with the pandemic, that probably worsened. So as we learn from experiences, David, what has been the impact of the pandemic in clinical trial enrollment, particularly for neoadjuvants in, in adjuvant studies at Duke? Well, so as, as you all stated, unplanned disruptions, you know, luckily force innovation, and, and it really pushed us to more telehealth adaptations of data collection. I will say that we have been growing in complexity of our trials, now taking six to 12 months to get open with reams and reams of material. And Dr. Garasino, who was the who commented on this presentation, showed a picture five years ago and today of two trials in the UK with a stack of three binders and a stack of 30 binders next to each other. And I bring that up because maybe this disruption caused by COVID is going to make us rethink what the onerous task now of putting people on trials, because we're having trouble getting staff, we're having trouble to interest uh, young physician investigators to a career in clinical research when they see the amount of paperwork, the audits, and all the things that are going on. And, and so maybe we can use this as a silver lining to, to come up with some better best practice modules that may not only be better and safer for our patients, but also make the whole process more streamlined. The goal here is to get therapies to our patients sooner that are safe and faster. And, and I would argue that maybe our, per, our present process is not doing a great job in, in that area. Yeah, I think that's a bit of an understatement, David. Completely agree with you. And I, I do worry a bit because what we're seeing is 
uh, the pandemic disrupting our clinical research, um, major disruptions in basic science research, in grant funding. We think of some of the restrictions we have across the country with space. A lot of the research labs are not big. And physically, we can't maybe accommodate all the lab members that we need to run some of the experiments that we would normally do. The advances we're seeing at WCLC, it's the result of, of clinical research. And you know, as Dr. Cantini put in one of his presentations at this meeting, implications of the pandemic for patients with cancer will likely be felt for years to come. And so we're really going to see the downstream effects of this in future years. And my hope is that we can minimize that, turn things a bit around. But you know, fortunately, we are still seeing a lot of research being pushed out. We saw those numbers start to increase in 2020 compared to 2019. We also saw other clinical trial results read out in another plenary session led by our colleague, Dr. Luis Pazarez, was the Atlantis trial. This is something we've been waiting for for a while now. We Most of our top-line data from press releases, this was no exception. So we've known the results of this study, but it's the first time we're really seeing the data. Lurbanectidin is the focus here. That's an agent that showed promising response rates in patients with relapsed small cell, response rate around 36% in the salvage setting, 46% in sensitive, 22% in resistant. Those are pretty robust numbers, but single arm phase two trials don't move the field. Ultimately, we had to do phase three trial. Based on the phase two, Lerbinectin did receive FDA accelerated approval, but required confirmation. And the confirmatory study was the Atlantis trial. Unfortunately, as mentioned, this is a negative study. So as a reminder, in Atlantis, it was patients with one prior line of therapy for a small cell lung cancer. They were randomized to a combination of doxorubicin plus lurbanectidin at a dose of two mg per meter squared. Note that is a lower dose than the approved monotherapy dose or standard chemo with either IV topotecan or triplet CAV. Primary endpoint of this study was overall survival. Big study, over 600 patients. Unfortunately, no difference in overall survival. Median with lurbanectidin and doxorubicin was 8.6 months versus 7.6 with chemotherapy. The hazard ratio there, 0.967, not significant. When we break it down by chemotherapy-free interval, by prior immunotherapy, brain meds, just no signal there, completely no difference in survival. Slight advantage for progression-free survival and duration of response with lurbanectidin. Also a much better safety profile with the Lerbidox combo. Fewer cases of grade three anemia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, though I will comment that both arms are pretty notable for myelosuppression. Certainly a couple of questionable flaws in, in the design. Importantly, the study featured a combination of lurbanectidin and doxorubicin instead of lurbanectidin alone. The doxorubicin certainly adding toxicity, unclear how much benefit that was providing, and maybe it even limited the delivery of lurbanectidin. As mentioned, the dose of lurbanectidin lower here, and we have other studies that show dose is important for efficacy of lurbanectidin. So this certainly can explain some of the results, but it doesn't change the fact that this was a negative trial and we needed this for confirmation of the accelerated approval. Tom, when you look at these Atlantis data, now that you have the full data set, does this change your view of lurbanectidin at all? And maybe answer it from your perspective, as well as how our colleagues and the regulatory authorities will react. Oh, my first impression is, unfortunately, we've been down this road before with amirubicin and nivolumab and others. And uh, I think it's very disheartening as someone who has to treat patients with small cell. And as Dr. Rudin talked about there, we unfortunately have very limited options in this disease. This does change my impression of lubronectinum because I, I was somewhat maybe had excess enthusiasm after the phase two trial with understanding that we really would need to wait on the phase three trial. But personally, I didn't see any signal of uh, efficacy in terms of response. The difference in PFS to me was not uh, clinically meaningful. And of course, overall survival. And I think that 
from the regulatory standpoint, I think this will uh, cause a reevaluation because it was uh, approved on the accelerated approval. I'm not sure if it's going to get a, some extra time because there are additional trials ongoing um, with lubridectinib, and maybe one of those, uh, they'll allow the conditional approval while those uh, trials mature. Assuming that it's, it's available, I would still use this just because I think topotecan on the schedule used in the trial of daily times five is very hard to deliver. CAV is a active compound, but many of our patients have uh, cardiac toxicities um, and, and reduced EFs, and so that's not an option for all patients. And so I hope that it's still available just because of our, our, our limited options um, at this time. Uh, but very disappointing, I think, for all of us who treat lung cancer to see this trial read out as um, so as negative. Well, thank you, Tom, for your insights. So, David. Were there any other presentations that particularly caught your eye? Well, you know, if there's an advantage to the online format is it allows you to see concurrent sessions. And when you're live, you can't be in more than one room at once. And I will say that although there were many active sessions the first day, I thought the first plenary session on disparities in lung cancer was quite informative. And Dr. Osara Giovan had a presentation on disparities of lung cancer in the US. And it was actually quite sobering that uh, he first looked at the survival and mortality. And as one might imagine, there are some states that are lower and some that are higher. And his area in the Mississippi Delta region is the highest in the country. And so certainly there's differences in not only tobacco, but in treatment, and that needs to be worked on rural versus urban. But I think the most surprising thing is when he looked at cancer, lung cancer screening and where the lung cancer screening centers were, as they were focused predominantly in the Northeast and West or in the large urban centers in the Midwest and Southeast, and were exactly in the opposite places where there's the highest incidence and mortality from lung cancer. In other words, the areas that have done the best job of smoking cessation and control have the highest levels of screening. And the areas where the screening is needed most are where the areas where screening is not possible for uh, the people in those areas. And so it's a clear opportunity for us to, as uh, this organization, to use our political force to try to make some changes and to equalize access to smoking cessation, as well as lung cancer screening for all Americans. Tom, was there a presentation in your perspective from a med oncologist that we should go back and listen to again? Um, I think there were several presentations that were sort of adventurous to medical oncologists. Uh, generally, these were smaller ones. Uh, the, the new EGFR Exxon 20 insertion drug that was presented shows some promise. I also found, uh, this gets back to one of your previous comments, Stephen, um, there was a long-term follow-up of the Nadim trial. To remind people, this is a carbotaxol nivolumab induction therapy in stage 3A disease. And I think that this induction chemoimmunotherapy is of great interest to us. And they showed a good long-term survival. Of course, it's a single-arm trial, so you, know, you have to interpret that cautiously. But they really looked at the outcomes of the patients getting, having a path CR and also having ctDNA clearance. And uh, I think that they were very good prognostic signs. And I think that these are some of the trials that make uh, world lung very important to people who treat uh, lung cancer and also who do uh, lung cancer research is maybe some of these smaller trials or longer term follow-up that may not get as much um, 
prominence at uh, larger meetings or general oncology meetings. So, Kristen, any other data you saw were particularly interested at the meeting? Yeah, so in the in day two, in the unresectable locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer session, there was a retrospective analysis from the University of Pennsylvania looking at proton versus photon radiation for stage three non-small cell lung cancer. And what they found was when adjusted for age, there was reduction in the death of intercurrent disease for patients that received proton therapy compared with photons. Um, not surprisingly, there was less mean heart dose to those proton patients also. And as a group, they were older, they had a higher burden of cardiovascular disease and a tobacco use. And I think that it's it's interesting in that it really points to the fact that this could potentially be a niche for the advanced technology proton therapy in reducing side effects for these patients that maybe are more frail and aren't optimal candidates for our standard chemo radiation. You know, we obviously await the larger phase three trial by energy oncology that's ongoing, but I think it was interesting to see that analysis. There's also a great educational session from Jill Feldman on implicit bias that I think is useful for everyone to view. And then lastly, there is a plenary session on lung cancer stigma. It hasn't aired yet as we're in the middle of the meeting, but it's sure to be top-notch. So I would I would catch that also. I want to talk a little bit about some of the awards. IACLC does present several different awards, including some merit awards, lectureship awards, care team awards. The 2021 Cancer Care Team Award overall went to Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Melbourne, but there are regional winners as well. And the North American regional winner, as we know, is our very own Dr. Narjus Duma and her team at the University of Wisconsin. Can you talk a little bit about these awards, why they matter, and maybe just about the awards in general? The, you know, I do believe that obviously our organization brings all of us together who treat thoracic malignancies. It's our drive, it's our passion, and, and you know, it is our day job, as I always say. But we're all, a lot of us are sort of unsung heroes at our institution. I mean, to face it, lung cancer has never been the sexy disease at institutions as well as in oncology. I've laughed with my friends now and said that with targeted therapies and immuno-oncology, we're becoming the cool kids of cancer. But it is always good to recognize those of us who've gone above and beyond in the care. And I think the most important of these are the team awards, because this is a team sport. We do not work in a vacuum. Everyone uh, pulls together. And frankly, it's hard work. And so, uh, you know, recognizing people who've made scientific advances, who've made clinical research advances. But I do feel like the most important awards we give are not the grants to promising young investigators, but are the team recognitions. Yeah, I second that. And, you know, I would say what we do every day is hard and having that acknowledged is really important. And it's something that can help with the burnout of the day-to-day. And, you know, I think the more awards that that we can have, the better off we are. So I would, I'd like to see ISLC have even more awards than what we have right now. And congratulations uh, to you, Narjus, on winning the Cancer Team Award, the Regional North American Award. A shout out to you and your team. Any comment on, on what the award means and how that process works? Thank you for mentioning that, you know, as I recovered from surgery, learning about that award was just very, very, very good news in a few busy weeks. I think for us, UW, now Dana Farber, was we came out with this idea of having a clinic dedicated for women with lung cancer. We pitched and pitched the idea and so many emails after 
that became a reality. And, and it's great to know that, you know, this out of the ordinary clinic gets recognition in the first year of existence. And it motivates me, you know, to continue that work at Dana-Farber. And for everybody that is out there is that if you believe on something and you make it happen, you know, you eventually will get the rewards. Congratulations again, Narjus. Very well-deserved. And when we think of the WCLC, you know, for a lot of us, it's our favorite meeting. We can all think of one that was special to us, you know, make a lot of friendships. I certainly learn a lot at these meetings. To our chairs, any tips for those who, who might be interested in chairing the WCLC in the future? Well, I would say put together a good team of people that can create a shared vision with for the meeting. I think for the three of us, we were really, we wanted to make the meeting as inclusive as possible and bring the younger generation into the meeting and into you know the speaker lineup and really involve those young investigators as much as we could. And also to involve our patient, our patient advocates and put forth appealing content that really had global reach and, you know, putting together a, a program that, that has that vision that you sort of personalize, I think is a great opportunity. And it's really a lot of fun. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I think that uh, Kristen summed it up quite well. I mean, I, we, we really, our goal was to, to move the organization in the direction that we all feel it should go to be, it's truly, it is the global organization. And so we want the representatives on the program to represent uh, the people out there in the world. And so we worked the best we could to try to do that. And if there is an advantage to, to the online, you know, virtual environment is that it is leveling the playing field with respect to travel. Because one of the frustrations of World Long is that some of the developing world countries just can't send people to the means because it's expensive. And then frankly, even in the larger centers, a lot of the junior faculty and fellows aren't able to attend because of their responsibilities. So having the, the meeting online and recorded where everyone can share, I think does allow more access. And so again, I think it has been a good thing and it has been a true pleasure, not only working with, with Tom and Kristen who are fantastic, but with the entire staff of the organization. They just made this look easy for us with their dedication. And they are really the people who did all the heavy lifting for this meeting. I would echo what David and Kristen said. And, you know, I think that this is a great honor for me. And I think you really realize how dedicated this like staff is in getting this done and how complex it is. And also this like membership that many of the people gladly volunteered their time and made contributions. And I think they will continue to be a very unique meeting that you can do everything from uh, smoking sensation to early detection to screening clinics um, and have a real global scope. And so I, I think that I'm just grateful I got this really unique opportunity. And I think we all remember that special work conference along cancer. We have chatted in the past about this, but when I'm like a little bit down or something happened in clinic, I remember... Barcelona 2019, we are very well-known oncologists from the Philly area, just pouring rain down on us like we were soaking wet. There was no other way around. We were just wet. And that just brings so many smiles. And I hope to, you know, we get to do that again. And I'm looking forward to getting soaking wet outside of the conference center again. There is so much to talk about. We're running out of time. And Stephen and I would like to thank you for listening. And we especially would like to thank our co-chairs for making the time to join us today 
and for working so hard to making this a successful meeting. Dr. Kristen Higgins. I would say, again, this was a great experience. We're very grateful for the staff that really put in so much work to make this meeting happen. We're, of course, grateful for all of the participants across 105 countries that registered for the meeting and the involvement and engagement every day in the daily chats, you know, after each session and all of those that are using social media to promote more engagement with the meeting. That all makes this meeting really special. So again, we're grateful for the opportunity and thanks so much for having us on your podcast today. Dr. Tom Sidicom. Thank you very much. I'm grateful to be on the podcast and that this is a great opportunity and a great organization. It's been a privilege to, to participate in this meeting. And Dr. David Harpole. I really have nothing to add to my co-chairs. It's been, it's been a pleasure and a joy to work with them, the staff, and frankly, for us to hopefully put together a meeting that's going to be informative and helpful for all of the providers and patients and advocates out in the world who are fighting thoracic malignancies. To our listeners, if you'd like to hear more from the meeting, Drs. Harpole, Higgins, and Stinchcomb will also present a webinar highlighting the science and outcomes of this 2021 WCLC on October 1st, 2021. Sign up for that on the IASLC website. Thanks certainly to all of those on the regional organizing committee, to all of the track chairs, the IASLC and ICS staff, as well as those who participated and presented at this meeting. That's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope you'll tune in on the first and third week of every month to give us a listen. You can engage on Twitter at IASLC or at our website, IASLC.org. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.
Thank you.